is good to be here with all of you. And uh, what a privilege to be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, to be uh, invited to where God places his name, to be here. And you've been here for four days already. Today is day five. At least that's the count that I think I... Okay. You know, they get kind of mixed up. Out. You don't even know what day it is after a while at the feast. It's just so wonderful. But uh, I think we're day five. But I have a question. Why did you come? Why have you been here all this time? Why didn't you just keep the feast in your home? Why didn't you just observe it in your home area? I'd like to spend a little time answering that question today. I know it's nothing new, uh, but I think maybe we can focus on it from a slightly different angle today. Let's turn over to Leviticus 23. I'm sure you've been there already during this feast, but I can plead ignorance. I wasn't here when you last turned here, so uh, I'm not aware of it. So let's go ahead and go back. And I think Mr. Weston on the opening night said it's okay if we read the same scriptures more than once. They're still there. It's not like they're, you know, you check the box and then they disappear. No, they're still there. So Leviticus 23, of course, the instruction about the Feast of Tabernacles in uh, verse 34. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month, shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. We observed that. On the eighth day, verse 36, you shall have a holy convocation, etc. It is a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work on it. And my understanding, Mr. Greer talked about worshiping God and how important it is that we we come before him and we do it in in the way that he that he prescribes and finally he says um, verse 39 also on the 15th day of the seventh month when you've gathered in the fruit of the land you shall keep the feast of the lord for seven days on the first day there shall be a sabbath rest on the eighth day a sabbath rest you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. Verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So we understand that the whole idea of dwelling in booths is that we are living in temporary dwellings. I think we heard uh, from Mr. Durstein last uh, Sabbath. Uh, we were in Richmond. We were getting the stream from here. And he talked about that, didn't he? Uh, that we are in temporary dwellings. We are living in a temporary life and, and relating it to the sojourn of our life. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy 14. My point here in, in what we just read is that it's a, it's, the whole idea is that we're living somewhere not in our homes. We're living somewhere not the, where we normally live. Uh, by and large. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14 now. Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 22. 
You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain, and the field produces year by year, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So he's talking now about tithing. He's talking about setting aside 10% of our produce throughout the year. And you do it, you, you, you come, you bring it, you, you worship before the Lord where He places His name. You don't do it in your local place of worship. And at that time, God guided His servants to know where He should be, He should be worshiped. Today, the church works very hard to, to discern where God is placing His name. Now, does that mean just blindfolds and throw a dart at, at a map? Uh, does it mean just picking a place? No, there's quite a long process and oftentimes that involves a lot of research in terms of uh, looking into places, working with, we at headquarters work with our area pastors who then give feedback about different places that might be potential uh, feast sites. And then we talk to people and, and then they, 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 we get prices of meeting halls and, and housing. Is there a, you know, a appropriate housing? Is it, is it somewhere where we would want to be? Or is it in the middle of any major city? Now, of course, we are in the downtown area of New Bern, but it's, it's really a beautiful spot. And so it all depends. There's so many factors that, that, uh, that play into it. But there's a lot that goes into it. And then those, those, uh, Potential sites then are, are presented to Mr. Weston and Dr. Winnell and Mr. Ames and the, those others who deal with the business decisions at headquarters. And, and with a lot of prayer and a lot of consultation, then a decision is made. Sometimes the, the decision is fairly obvious because some doors are closing, some doors are opening. For example, give you an idea of some of the places we've met in out west. Several years ago during the beginning of the pandemic, uh, one place in particular I'm thinking of was begging us to come. They were so thankful that we were meeting because all of their business had dried up. So they gave us a great deal. Two or three years down the road, now looking to next year, they raised the price by about five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. And we're thinking, okay, that is a door that is closing. And clearly we need to look somewhere else. And sure enough, other another place uh, opened up. And, and so it, it's, it's not just sort of guessing. It's where does God put the, where does God open the doors? And so that's what we're looking at. That God intended for us to, to stay in temporary dwellings. Now again, uh, as was mentioned, we have a number of people who are shut-ins. A number of people are not able to come. Is this to denigrate those who are at home? No, please understand. Those who are at home that perhaps are, are hearing us right now, uh, we're thinking about you. We love you. We wish you were here with us. We know it's not fun to be home at the, during the feast when everybody else is at the feast and you... You hear about uh, the, the, you see the pictures, you hear about the fellowshipping and the activities, and and there's something about being here in person. And it's hard when you're not in person. And it's difficult, and you feel isolated, and you feel cut off. 
And we need to continue praying for our beloved shut-in brethren who are at home, that they would be encouraged, that God would be with them, and to help them to have a good feast as well, in spite of their conditions that they're going through. But by and large, if we're able, we go to the feast, don't we? We go where God places His name. Now, there's a little bit more that we can read here, and uh, in case there's any doubt that, no, this, this really doesn't mean what it sounds like, But then we read on and it says, verse 24, but if the journey is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you and the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money and take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or similar drink or whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice you and your household. I heard about the, the steaks that Mr. Uh, Stevens was going to eat during the feast, right? Uh, how we, how we doing on that? We get working through those? All right. Excellent. Excellent. But you know what? I didn't see Mr. Stevens uh, uh, driving some cattle from Texas, right? That might be a little more complicated. But even years ago when people were living in an agrarian society, the idea was that, uh, let's say your tithe would be, your festival tithe would be 10 sheep or 15 sheep or 50 chickens. You know, the idea was not that... You, you have to drive your 15 sheep 100 miles to get through Jerusalem. Uh, if it was too long, then you sell them and you change it into money and then you buy whatever you need when you get there. The point being, clearly that implies you're going to the feast. You're going somewhere that you aren't normally living. Let's turn over to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14, another passage that we, we often read, uh, about Zechariah 14 and, um, verse 1. It's such a fascinating glimpse into the, in this chapter in Zechariah, into the end of the period of Satan's rule, the, the, the last, the day of the Lord, that last year before the millennium, and then the bridge into the first part of the millennium. It says, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord your, uh, is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, and I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the house is rifled, the women ravished, half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, etc. So Christ returns. He puts down this rebellion, and it's really not much of a fight. Once, you know, these nations are fighting for control of the earth, and then just before they destroy all life, Christ intervenes, and they turn and fight against him. And really, they're just sort of vaporized. It's not much of a fight at all. And we read about that, you know, later in the the chapter there. And Jesus Christ puts down that that rebellion. 
But so think about it. For the first few days of the feast, and I know this is, this is uh, we're already midway in the feast, but at the beginning, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of damage. There's a lot of devastation that has to be cleaned up and has to be worked through. And uh, the first feast, perhaps, there's, it's really a little bit more of a refugee uh, situation where people need food and water and clothing and, and that sort of thing. But then we see in verse 16, we see the beginning of this pattern of people coming up to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of tabernacles. So we see this pattern happening. The same nations, the same people that were fighting each other before now are coming up to keep the feast of tabernacles. And there is a powerful dynamic of what's what's happening. And that is that is that some people are responding to the call. You see after those first few days, let's say, let's say after those first few days of, of, of the, after the day of the Lord and the wreckage and the rebuilding, there's going to be some time when as the saints are ruling over cities, ruling over countries, ruling over districts around the world, the word will get out, right, that next year, we're going to be going to the feast in Jerusalem. Not every last person, but representatives of every nation. They're going to be coming to the feast in Jerusalem. The Eternal is calling us to bring representatives to the feast. And some will respond. Some will respond. But others will not. And then we see that hypothetical situation about those who do not. Verse 17, it shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts on them shall there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. You know, we use the word today incentivizing. This is God's incentivizing program, right? He says, look, I don't want to destroy you. I want to induce you to, to do what I said and to respond. And maybe at the very beginning of that process, God keeps it really, really simple. And he says, look, I'm not asking you to to understand every nuance of doctrine. You don't have to have a degree in theology to understand what I'm saying. I'm wanting you to go from point A to point B. Point A is where you live. Point B is where you come to worship me. And some will do it. And some will enroll in the incentivizing program. Because they won't do it right away. But they will eventually. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 
21, it's interesting that Egypt is mentioned because in a negative sense in in, uh, Zechariah, because here in Isaiah, Egypt is mentioned as well. Isaiah 19 and verse 21, Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. So the hypothetical situation where Egypt does not respond turns into a healing and a response in the right direction. And they begin to come up to the feast. And it's a wonderful picture. So what are we seeing? What are we talking about? What is God wanting? When we speak of the Feast of Tabernacles, He's looking for a response. He's looking for us to respond. He's going to look for them to respond. Go to from point A to point B. Obedience. Responding to Him. And then, not just being responsive to God, but learning to be responsive to one another as well. Because, let's read on in Isaiah chapter 19 and verse uh, verse 23 going on. It says, In that day there shall be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, uh, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So now we see nations that were just a short time before battling each other to the death. And maybe they even have relatives who died in that location around Jerusalem. Now they are walking hand in hand, perhaps passing by some of those same places where their fathers, their brothers, their sons had been fighting. But now they're arm in arm. Not just responding to God, but learning to respond to one another, these deadly enemies. And that's a beautiful, beautiful Picture. Let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 25. 1 Kings chapter 12 verse 25. There is something very powerful about the Feast of Tabernacles, which all of the holy days are, are wonderful, but there, every, every holy day has something unique, doesn't it? And there's something special and unique about these feast days that has to do with coming. Leaving home and coming and being together, worshiping God and being responsive to Him. First Kings, uh, First Kings chapter 12 and verse 25. First Kings chapter 12 and verse 25. This is the story of Jeroboam after the northern house of Israel split off the southern house of Judah. And Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and dwelt and built Penuel. 
And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. How interesting. Jeroboam knew there was something that was very powerful in the nations of the northern house of Israel of going back to Jerusalem, going to the Feast of Tabernacles, that if he wasn't careful, he was going to lose his kingdom, his hold on them. Because they would remember worshiping God together. And they would remember being together. As, again, you you heard a little while ago about being unified. About how important it is to be unified at the feast. And how unifying being together and going to the feast is. You know, it's interesting, back a few years ago, those of you who were around at that time, uh, remember when the Worldwide Church of God was going off track and, and the leadership was taking it in a totally different direction, total apostasy ultimately, one of the steps was, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles, it's, it's eight days, it's a long time, uh, you've got jobs. You've got to take care of your families. It's 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 really only a tradition. It's not a doctrine that we have to go. It's a it's a really good tradition, but it's just a tradition. So go if you can, but if you can't, we're not going to judge you. And then it became well, you know, if you can't make it every day, at least go on the the weekends, right? It's easier to get off work on the weekends. So that would be okay. And then it became, well, you know, maybe that's just not a a really good time in the fall. Maybe a week or two earlier would be better. Maybe the prices are better or the leaves are changing and it's more beautiful or whatever. And step by step by step and eventually it was just forgotten about altogether. Maybe Satan knows something about how important the Feast of Tabernacles is, along with all all the other holy days, but the Feast in particular brings us all together in unified places out of our homes where we go to where God places His name, and there's something special that happens. Because Satan is trying at every turn to try to keep us from doing this thing that we're We've been doing the last four or five days. Why did you come to the feast? Why are we here? Zechariah chapter 8. Let's turn over to Zechariah chapter 8. And this is just one more passage near the one that we read a little while ago. Zechariah 14, but we'll... You can turn to Zechariah 8. Zechariah 8 and verse 
Verse 4 talks about uh, old men and old women, again, in the si- sitting in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with a staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. You can imagine the children of, of some of those who were fighting just previously, a few years before. Now they're playing together. The streets are peaceful. It's a unifying thing to be responding to one another and to God. And finally, in verse 20, it says in uh, Zechariah chapter 8, Thus uh, says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall be shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. There's a key verb here, and that is to go. There's a key action, going to the feast. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Responding to God and responding to one another. So, what does this mean for us? Let's, let's break this down into maybe a couple of practical things as we think about our lives, as we think about what we're doing here and what we're doing in our life in general. What are two, let's say, takeaways we can learn from the feast, coming up to the feast, New Bern and, and other places where, where our, our people, our brethren are meeting this year at the feast? Number one, number one, be responsive to God in your daily personal life. Be responsive to God in your daily personal life. Now, this is, of course, nothing new, nothing earth-shattering. Um, but think about it. You know, think about even even what brought us here today. What brought us here whenever you arrived, Sunday or the previous Friday uh, think about what led up to it. Think about every week or every two weeks or every month, whenever, however you are paid your uh, income, your increase, you set aside second tithe, didn't you? We read about that in Deuteronomy 14. Throughout the whole year, we're preparing or doing work to prepare to come to the feast. The planning that is involved. Sometime last spring, perhaps, you started thinking about where you might want to go, maybe talking to family members, maybe talking to other friends, housing, where you would stay, uh, figuring out your budget. Finally, you get closer to the feast, and then you make sure the, the car starts, you know, make sure there's uh, fluid in it and uh, oil change, get all the tires are, are working, and all of that. There's a lot to do, uh, maybe getting time off, if you work for a boss, uh, if you have your own business, maybe making sure that the decks are clear or someone else is taking care of it while you're gone. There's a lot of preparation, isn't there? There's a lot of thought that goes into it. Wouldn't it be easier if we just kept it at home in our living room? Just think about think about all the work that you put in. Think about all the work that Mr. Saselka put into the feast. We could make him... So happy if he didn't have to, to work so hard for us throughout the whole year, right? Sure, it'd be easy. 
But there's something that, that is happening when we put conscious thought throughout the whole year in preparing for the feast, in getting ready to come before God in the place that He places His name. We also, in Deuteronomy 14, looked at how we are here to learn to fear the Lord your God always. What does that mean? Not to be terrified of Him. We've heard this a million times. This will be a million and one. Not to be terrified of Him. Certainly, if we are going against Him, we should read Zechariah 14 and look at what happens to the enemies of the eternal. You know, Psalm 2, isn't it? says, kings of the earth, uh, kiss the sun you know, quickly, <laughs> lest he be angry. And when they, the nations rage against the Lord, it says he, he laughs. He holds them in derision. I don't think it means that he hates people. I don't think it means he likes being sarcastic and snarky. I just think it, it, it means that God thinks it's so ridiculous for human beings to think that they could actually thwart his plan. He can't help but laughing. And so, yes, if we are in opposition against him, we should be fearful. As in afraid of the consequences. But if we are trying to respond to him, and if we're trying to walk with him, he's very merciful. And what is he looking for? What does fearing God mean? It means turning our attention to him. It means thinking about what he wants. It means responding to him. It means having our focus on him. It means not letting everything that that comes by distract us so that we never put our attention on what does God want. It means realizing He is our Creator, He's our King, He is supreme, and we're learning to respond to Him just like those nations will in Zechariah 14. He didn't send rain, and He sent the plague, not because He hates them, but rather He wants to teach them to just respond. Think about our own spiritual journey. Your, your spiritual journey. When did God first get your attention and open your eyes to the truth? Think back. Maybe, maybe you even had a, a car accident. Maybe there was a difficult health trial. Or maybe someone in your family had a health trial. Or maybe you just came to the point where you recognize, I cannot run my life anymore. I'm running. It's a train wreck. I need God's help. I can't do it myself. And God showed you that you need something different. You're right here. You're at point A. And you need to be at point B. And you made that choice. You took that step. You said, I've got to be baptized. I've got to be different. I need God's help. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe maybe there wasn't a light bulb moment, you know, like those who come in from the world. But maybe even growing up in the church, you began to realize, wow, this really is for me. And I, I need to make a choice. I need to make a commitment to this. I need to, to be convicted. I've grown up in it. I've heard it all my life. I, I see my parents' example. I see others. But I'm still here at point A. And I want to be at point B. And I need to be at point B. 
Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Of course, Mr. Meredith's favorite scripture. It's hard to believe he's been gone for, what is it, about four years, five years, five years? But I, you know what I've noticed? The scripture is here, still here, isn't it? Still here. And his, his voice echoes in our heads. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God. Of the Son of God. It's not in the Son of God. Look it up. In a, if you haven't done this before, please do it. So you know it's not just the talking heads up here. Uh, look it up in an interlinear Bible. And it will show. This is a possessive, uh, it's the, uh, the faith of the Son of God. It's Christ's faith. Yes, we respond to Him, but He's the one who puts the, the thoughts in our head. He's the one who helps us to respond. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So it's not our own strength. It's not our faith alone. Sure, we have to step out on faith. We have to take that step. We have to want to go from point A to point B. But he backs it up with his spirit and his strength and his faith. And then we're on the journey. We're on the way. And, and the journey is not just one response, is it? You ever notice that there is something else that we are to do? Otherwise, immediately after being baptized, think about it. We would all die. If that was the only step that was needed, then why should we even live any longer after we're baptized? Because then we're ready for the kingdom. Wouldn't that be something? Immediately after, Mr. Sizelka mentioned something, someone's going to be baptized in a couple days. Wouldn't that be something if every time after someone was baptized, they die? Well, that'd be great in one sense because now you're, you're awaiting the kingdom, but it would also be kind of scary to be baptized, right? And our ranks would really get thinned out as, well, there'd be nobody here who was baptized. So clearly, it's not just the one step, but it's the journey. As we take that step, then we continue to respond to God. We might even make the parallel with, you know, some nations coming up to the feast right away as part of our life that we give over to God. But, but as time goes on in our life, isn't it true that we find little corners of our mind, little corner where, where we haven't really totally given it over to God? We realize, wow, I need to let Him rule in this part of my life too. And maybe that's sort of like those nations who are holding back, who are not yet coming, who haven't yet figured out that this is the way to go. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Maybe it's a a private sin. Maybe it's a way of justifying ourselves when we, how we say things, how we act in certain ways. Maybe it's resisting Him for whatever re reason. But we're sort of acting like those nations that just in certain parts of our life, they just need the in, in, incentive program. You know, you don't really want to enroll in, too deeply into that program, do you? Now, you want God's mercy. We want to respond as quickly as possible. And, and He is merciful. 
as we as we respond to him. And even when we need help, even when we need correction, if we are asking for God's correction in gentleness, he will be gentle with us. We read here in, in Psalm 19, David, a man after God's own heart, said, who can, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. God, help me for the things I don't see or for the things I see, but I just haven't quite taken a step on. I need your help. Be merciful. And he will be. Verse 14, that let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So during these days, we've been hearing messages about God's sovereignty, about God's greatness and, and why we should praise him and worship him. Are we applying it in our lives? Or are we only thinking, won't it be great when all of these things happen on the earth and we're not really applying it to ourselves. We need to be asking God to help us to submit more completely to him and respond to him. Even even taking notes, you know, we, we take notes every day at services. We write down things. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Is it just because everybody else is doing it? And, uh, you know, we don't want to be different? Well, it helps us remember things. But also, I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm, I'm writing down notes and I just want to stop and, and think a little bit. And think about what was just said. And maybe like Mr. Ames, he'll, he'll write down quotable quotes, you know, and the speaker will say something. I got to get that down. What the way he said it, that's really interesting. Maybe I don't have, you know, 20 minutes to think about it right now, but I'm going to write it down and circle it, highlight it. So tonight or tomorrow morning, I, I really want to think about that. And that's the value of, of taking notes. James chapter one and verse 21. James chapter 1 and verse 21, because it's, it's easy to forget things if we aren't uh, jogging our minds and, and helping our minds to, to commit it to, uh, to our memory. James chapter 1 and verse 21, therefore laying all aside all filthiness and overflow of weak, wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In other words, responsive, being teachable, just what we're talking about. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So let's make sure that this feast is a time for us to reaffirm where we stand before God. We've come to the feast. And those who are on the stream, not able to in, in, in person, we understand that they're doing the best they can. And we, we're all coming before God as we can. 
to every ability that we they have and reaffirming that we are responding to him. We did respond. Most of us there, I understand there, there are those in the audience right now who have not yet made that full commitment conviction to God. But in time, God will, God will work that out. But, um, we are, we are doing what the whole world will soon be able to do. Responding to God. Number two, number two. We also must, number two, be responsive to each other as brothers and sisters. Be responsive to each other as brothers and sisters. Just like those people who will come up to the feast, who will come up for a very different reason than perhaps their relatives or their friends just a year or two or three or five before. They will come to be together and be unified and and love one another and, and serve one another. And they'll have to learn that. And just think about... Just think about what those first few years may be. Mr. Mr. Armstrong, just, uh, we were listening to an old sermon not that long ago, uh, from the early 80s by Mr. Armstrong, and he mentioned it pro- he, his estimation was it might take two or three generations to work out some of the, some of the patterns of this world. It's gonna take some time. As we are working with people, but they're going to learn and, and what a, what a different and new way it will be. So are we responding to others in our life? Are we interacting with them in a positive way? While we're at the feast, we have so many unusual opportunities to be with one another, uh, to be with our brethren, lots of different people, our families, our parents, our children, other brethren in the church. We're away from our jobs. Are we responsive? Notice in 1 John 4 and verse 20, we might think, well, what does this have to do with being responsive to God? But we see there's a great connection here in 1 John 4 and verse 20. 1 John 4 and verse 20, if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Verse 21, 1 John 4, and this commandment we have from him, he, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So if we say we're responsive to God, but we disregard the needs of those around us, we're missing the point. We may think we're pleasing God, but we're missing the point if we're not learning to be responsive in our relationships. You know, we've been in close quarters, perhaps, with, with, uh, with family or perhaps with other brethren the last four or five days. Don't raise your hand, but has anyone had their toes stepped on over the last four or five days? Please don't raise your hand. Has anyone gotten annoyed with their roommate? Please don't, you know, none of, no, no elbows at this point. Have there ever, have there been any frayed nerves, you know, as, as we, uh, as we live together in, in close quarters? What about husbands and wives? Now I know that every marriage here is optimal and perfect, and so all of the husbands and wives have have had a absolutely perfection, you know, four days 
not getting annoyed with each other, right? Or not? We're, we're not yet perfect, right? So let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And yet we are to learn that. I mean, our mates are our closest neighbors if we are married. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse verse 32. This is a great mystery. He's speaking of the real purpose of marriage. And it is a mystery to this world. Actually, even more of a mystery to this world now because they think uh, there are all kinds of the divergent ways that you can define marriage has become more of a mystery every day. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Verse 33, Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his wife as his help, himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, we are, we should be working together and loving each other and supporting one another and learning to make our marriages work. Divorce is so prevalent in this world today. You know the statistics. It's sky high. And yet today, if we are married, we are striving, we must strive to learn to make marriage work. Nobody's perfect. You know, we understand that. But with God's help... We can learn to be responsive to one another. Men need to be respected. Women need to be loved and cherished. And both of those things must be done unconditionally, regardless of how grouchy or moody or, you know, uh, whatever the other is at that day. Mr. Ames has the the uh, five-second rule. You remember him talking about the five-second rule where if Mrs. Ames asks for something, he he counts down five, four, three, even if he has to throw it to her, you know, across the... Every time I hear him tell that story, I think, oh, no, he's going to hit her on the forehead, you know, when he throws the bag of, of uh, toiletries or whatever. But he's trying to be responsive to his wife. Some years ago, and I think some of you have probably heard this story, forgive me for repeating myself, but I'm going to do it anyway. Some years ago, my wife and I were at a, a couple's home for marriage counseling and very difficult situation. And during the counseling, the wife said, um, he never tells me he loves me. And I looked at him and I said, you know, how hard is it? Write it down. Put it in your date book. You know, give yourself an a, a alarm, a notification. Uh, find a way. Sticky notes. Put them all around every day. Tell her you love her. How hard is it? And uh, that evening, my wife and I walked out afterwards to our vehicle, got into the car, closed the door, and I was about to start turn the key, and she looked at me and said, How hard is it to say, <laughs> I love you? Ooh, ouch. We're all learning. I learned a valuable lesson that day. Take your own advice, right? We made a commitment, those of us who are married. We stood before God. And the minister, we stood before God to say, we vow 
to love this person unconditionally to death, to death. That was the first step. How responsive do we continue to be and are we growing in that? This feast can be a time to think about that and practice that and even talk about it. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, notice this goes in the the context right into family relationships. Children, verse 1 of Ephesians 6, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Young people, are you responsive to your parents? Now again, I know all of our young people here are perfect. So they are perfectly responsive to their parents, right? Everyone in this room, perfectly responsive every single time. Or not. You know, I'm ashamed to admit it, but... There were times when I was growing up when my dad had to institute his own incentive program to teach me to be more responsive. I was not an outright rebel. But, again, I'm embarrassed to admit it, there were times when I would drag my feet and I wouldn't do things that he said in the time frame he wanted. And... He told me, if he told me he wanted me to do something, he wanted it in his time frame, not mine. And I had to learn that wasn't really respecting him. If I, if he told me to take out the garbage and I was thinking, well, I'll do it sometime between now and next week, right? That was not respecting him. In my mind, I was thinking, well, yes, I will do it. Eventually, I will do it. I'm making a promise. But he was thinking, no, in the next two minutes, right? And I had to learn that. Young people, if there's one thing you can do to really make your parents happy, be responsive. Be responsive. Do what they say. And do it in their timetable. What does that mean? You see, as a kid growing up, we have a very different concept of time than our parents, don't we? Our parents, maybe not just two minutes... They want it, they want you to start to move your body toward that garbage can in the next five seconds, right? And that is a signal that you are being responsive. Or at least they want you to have some affirmation verbally using your mouth and vocal cords that says that I heard you and I Understand what you are saying because we're speaking the same language and now I am also speaking in that language so that you can know that I am now responding and saying, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, whatever. Now, there are times, there are going to be times, young people, that there will be an emergency that you may not be able to respond right away. For example, if you are doing brain surgery at that moment, life-saving brain surgery on someone, then tell your parents... Mother, dad, I am doing life-saving brain surgery on this. I cannot take the garbage out at this moment. But as soon as I'm done, I will take the garbage out, right? And I promise you, your parents will understand. you got to finish the surgery. In most cases, there's not that going on, right? 
young people, at, at least say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, or whatever you say, whatever your parents, how they want you to respond. But not just silence, crickets, you know, they ask you to do something and silence, no. And not just a grunt, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> you need words, they need words. And it makes them happy. Why? Because it's being responsive. This is a golden opportunity to learn that at the feast. I think our young people are up against more and more difficult challenges as time goes on because of the world we live in. And let me explain what I mean. Years ago, when I was at Ambassador College, I was, tell a story on myself again, I was, um, on the Day of Atonement, we were at services, and we were, the, the first three songs uh, we sung, and then uh, then the prayer was going on. And I was standing next to an older lady at that time, in the seat next to me, and during the prayer, she, I think because she was fasting, blood sugar, uh, she fainted. She crumpled. And I remember, you know, you have your eyes closed, you're praying, but I sensed some movement next to me, and I opened my eyes, and I saw her go down. And to this day, as I remember it, it was like I was watching a movie and in slow motion. And I saw her begin to fall, but I I didn't move. Nothing happened. I, I didn't respond. Across the aisle, about six feet away, there was a man who was also in a a, a standing at at a seat. He saw and responded, and he he lunged over, and he caught her elbows, her arms, and gently let her down to the ground so she didn't hurt herself. And it was really humiliating for me, because here I was, you know, a young college student guy standing right next to this poor widow and I just ignored her and this other man caught her and responded and I thought what happened and I have to think a little bit that I grew up the 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 years that that I and my generation were growing up we have tv we have movies And you get used to watching TV, you get used to watching movies, you get used to watching action, things that are happening, and not responding. In other words, you get used to being in a passive role of being a spectator and not responding. And I have to think, you know, I saw it as if I was watching a movie. Isn't that the way it is? And today it's even more so. Today, you even have a much more virtual world. Fast forward today. What is gaming today? Incredibly good graphics. Incredibly well-crafted games today that draw you in and, and, and fight all kinds of battles and go all kinds of places and win points, subdue kingdoms, vanquish foes, all from the comfort of your couch. Are we teaching our young people to be passive in this generation? Now, I understand some of the first shooter, you know, games 
You might say, someone might argue, well, wait a minute. No, I, I, you're actually learning to respond. And actually, that is true. The, the, the army, the military, I understand, uses some of these gaming technologies to break down inhibitions, to, to, to break down that barrier that, that a, na- a person naturally has to killing another human being. And so there is actually a, a training mechanism in, in that. However, However, the, the, the fact still remains that when you're in a gaming environment, in a virtual environment, you're doing all these things, and yet what did you do at the end of the day? You sat on your couch for an hour, or two, or five, or ten. When, when we need to learn to respond and be responsive... What about social media? I'm not just going to pick up on the guys. I'm going to pick on the girls too. What about social media? You know, conversation is an art. It's a skill to be developed. And it, it takes reading nuances of emotion, knowing what to say and when to say it. And it it's messy. Frankly, talking to someone in real life, you know, standing in front of you, it's, it's a little bit difficult and it's hard. And we, we read about, you know, some of the, some, some of the reports and articles about how what social media has done today. It's so much easier to send a text. It's so much easier to talk to somebody in Colorado than it is to talk to someone right across the table from you. Why? Because you have to learn to read emotional cues with that person. And if you say something that's offensive, they're gonna be looking at you in the eyeballs. That's why, you know, at camp, we have the campers check in their cell phones. They get them back from time to time to, to call their parents and uh, that sort of thing. But during camp, at mealtimes, they're talking to the person across the table. And it's wonderful. And during activities, they're talking and interacting. And it's wonderful. Because so many of these technologies are actually learning, teaching us to be passive. And so, young people, think about it. Take the challenge to really develop yourself as a whole personality. I'm not saying every game is bad, is terrible. I'm not saying every social media is bad and terrible. But how are we using these things? And as time goes on, more of our world is going to get even more virtual. You know that, right? The virtual, the meta, what is it? The Facebook is now being called meta. And, and they're, they're, they're going to try to immerse us even more into a world where we're doing all kinds of things and yet we're really passive. We're not really responding to other human beings. And, and look at the social problems we have in our world today. Look at how people can't figure out how to get along and how to respond to each other in ways that are not violent and ways that actually show respect to other human beings. We have an incredible opportunity here at the feast that that people around the world do not have. And that is God has called us to be together for eight days Not just to respond to Him, 
but to respond to each other. And it's happening. And it's beautiful. And it's happening with our older folks. It's happening with our middle-aged folks. It's happening with our young people. And it's beautiful. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34. When you really think about it, being responsive is fulfilling the two great commandments. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asking him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. You should respond to God and learn a way of life of responding to God. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Learn to respond to your neighbor in a way of life of responding to your neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The nations are going to learn to respond to God and each other. It won't be magic. It won't be a snap of the fingers. It will be a process just like for us. Let's turn over to Isaiah 25. But what an opportunity we have right now, right here, today, the last four days, the next four days, to walk through these things ahead of time, have a prior glimpse, and even practice it so we can be ready to help others, answer questions, teach them, show them, talk to them about how to do it. Isaiah 25 and verse 3. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. You have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. Verse 6. In this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, well-refined wines on the lees. Speaking of the, the theme of what we're talking about here in the millennial reign of Christ. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The veil over the nations. That's speaking of understanding coming when the nations learn to respond to their creator and to respond to each other. The Feast of Tabernacles, going to the Feast of Tabernacles, will play a huge part in teaching that lesson in the future of how to be responsive. Brethren, we are having that opportunity right now to practice with one another. Let's make the most of it. We're about halfway through. We've still got four days, I think, if my math is right, left. We've still got lots of time, but it's going to go fast, isn't it? It'll be over before we know it. Let's really drink it in, soak it up, and take every opportunity. We've been given so much. Let's continue to appreciate the opportunity we have to come, to come where God has placed His name. 
And let's think about how we can be responsive to him in the same way loving one another and being responsive to each other.